Today's podcast is brought to you by Accounting Buds. Accounting Buds is a special breed firm formed to meet the unique needs of the cannabis industry. Why do you need a specialized firm? Because cannabis is still illegal on a federal level. So plant touching businesses, even ancillary, you need an accountant who is up to date on constantly changing regulations. Accounting Buds offers a range of services, including full bookkeeping, reconciliation, and monthly reports. You can even get a virtual CFO, an experienced chief financial officer to manage budgeting, forecasts, growth, and expansion, all with monthly analytics. They also offer advisory services to help you build teams, systems, strategies. Whatever your financial needs, Accounting Buds will help your business have its best year ever. And now, listeners of the Trailblazing with Tiramisu podcast get a free consultation. Just mention you heard about them here. For more information, visit accountbuds.com. That's spelled A-C-C-T-B-U-D-S. That's A-C-C-T-Buds.com. You're about to get insider access to cannabis industry experts, entrepreneurs, activists, and living legends. Meet the people who live and blaze this life every day and are about to change the world. Now your host, the founder of Blazin Bakery, New Jersey's first edibles company with over a decade of national advocacy, sales, connections, and adventures behind her. A true trailblazer in cannabis. This is Trailblazing with Tiramisu. Hey everyone, hope you're doing amazing. Uh, I just wanted to say on the top, this should sound flawless. I edited it. If you hear one or two little skips, we did have a choppy Zoom connection, but it should be all fixed up now. I just wanted to say that just in case. But this episode, oh my God, this guy is doing some cutting edge cannabis research. Today I have epigenetics expert David Krantz. David developed a proprietary genetic test for the endocannabinoid system. He was named a 2019 Top 100 Healthcare Innovator by the International Forum for Advancements in Healthcare and has spoken at conferences like Body Hacking Con. David is currently an advisor to AMA Healing as a specialist on the genetics of the endocannabinoid system, along with Dr. Dan Engel from Onnit Labs and other luminaries in the health field. He also currently serves as the Director of Applied Psychoacoustics at Aperion Center. David uses epigenetics to work with Google product designers, cancer researchers, Broadway actors, entrepreneurs, and other artists to rewire their habits that were holding them back and boost their brain function. You are going to love this guy. Everyone, David Krantz. Hello, David. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I am so excited to have you. You are my first guest who is not either um, a friend or acquaintance. So um, you reached out to me and I, I do have a lot of people who reach out to me and it's a lot of the same, you know, you can only have so many growers, so many CBD companies. But when I looked up what you did, I was like, this is fascinating. I absolutely have to have this guy on. So um, you are an epigenetics expert and you have developed a proprietary test for the endocannabinoid system. Can you just kind of put that into English for everyone? <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, I'm glad you resonate with what I'm doing. It, it is kind of hard right now to find someone who's doing different in the, in the cannabis industry. And, you know, there's a lot of the same information kind of being recycled. And, you know, just to break down what I do, I work as a coach with people to help them understand their genetics, to help them understand how they're wired at these really deep levels so that they can match themselves up with the right nutrition, the right sleep habits, all of these things that, you know, vary from different differently from person to person. So over the past couple of years, I've been developing a test to look at how people respond to cannabis, ways to optimize and improve uh, cannabis use, look at potential risk factors for certain people, and just be able to give people a little bit better answer than, hey, just try it and see what happens. Yes. Because I think that's kind of you know the stock answer that most practitioners give, which is better than saying, don't try it at all. Mm-hmm. But there's another layer that I think we can get to when we're, we're looking at some of the individual characteristics on the genetic level. Yeah. And so I've been testing this with, in my practice over the past year, and I'm just now beginning to release it, launch it to the public, and um, I'm training other practitioners on how to use it. Very cool. So my question was, so your background was in music production, 
And mm -hmm. then I, I read your story, which I, I'd love for you to share of how you got into this. But um, so something as specific as developing a proprietary test. So you've done something that hasn't been uh, explored prior. You're the first person to do that or? There are uh, there's some other similar tests on the market, but mm -hmm. the way that we're presenting the information is different. And okay. what makes us different actually is the transparency of it. Uh -huh. Like there's some other tests on the market that I think are are making bigger claims than they really can in terms of like, you know, this is going to tell you exactly what strain you should yeah. use. We're not quite there yet. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, ethical and important to say, hey, here's what the research actually says. This stuff is still useful we're probably gonna figure out how to do that eventually, but for now, yeah. let's actually be real with what we know and what we don't. So, you know, giving that to practitioners as a tool and for people that are interested, I think it's, it's clearer when we can be really specific um, about the nature of the information. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned how I, how I got into this yeah. and I'll tell, you, tell your listeners the story. <laughs> so, yeah, my background's in music. I've been a musician my whole life. And in some ways, it kind of prepared me to look at the body the way I do now. I mean, you write music, play music, you're constantly taking into account all these different parts that are meshing together, different instruments, uh, different layers. And it's very similar to how the human body works. It's this complex thing, right? So in my 20s, I had some really weird health problems crop up. I started passing out randomly and had stomach issues oh, wow. and kind of like all the weird things that no one no one could really like tell me what was wrong mm -hmm. and you know I went to a bunch of traditional doctors and I saw a cardiologist and they're like yeah you know you're you're healthy enough there's really nothing we're going to do for you you just have to be aware that this is a thing you're gonna have to live with yeah and me being me I did not take that as an answer and started really diving into the world of biohacking and kind of individualized health and yeah. uh, started to do some things that, that shifted my own health. Yeah. And I, I was just absorbing all the information I could that was out there. And I was listening to a lot of podcasts and I had listened to this one podcast, like all the way through, like every episode, probably like 60 episodes of it. <laughs> and I was taking a walk at work one day and I realized that the logo of this podcast was actually on the building next door. And the doctor that I had been listening to actually had an office literally a hundred yards away from me. Wow. So I booked an appointment because I wanted to get some blood work done and just work with them. And it turns out that they were actually looking to hire someone to help them develop brainwave entrainment and meditation audio programs. Mm -hmm. And I just had kind of the perfect skill set. So I started working with them. And shortly after this doctor who's a world expert in genetics and epigenetics, started a training program for other coaches and doctors because he had a lot of people asking him, hey, how are you, how are you doing this with your, your clients? And I was there at the right time for him to notice like, hey, you know, you've actually got some of these skills, these basic understandings. And, you know, I, and, and, you know, would you be interested in beta testing this training program? And I actually said no at first. I was like, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a musician. I'm, you know, I'm not a health practitioner yeah. and kind of nudged me and was like, come on, like I can, I, I see more potential in you than you see in yourself. So I trusted him. I, I, I trained with them. I actually trained with them multiple times before he made it public. So I was just in the right place to get taken under this guy's wing. Yeah. And since then I've been working with people on a one-on-one -on -one basis and I've been working with him over the past couple of years to develop this test that now we're, we're launching to the public. Oh, so he helped kind of with the science end of developing, uh, you know, the, the cannabis test. Yeah, he helped a little bit. Uh, I did a lot of the research. He, um, he had end having the resources to actually run it. Very cool. That makes sense. Um, and then I saw you're working through Onnit Labs, which is Joe Rogan's product line. You're working with some of the scientists there on something or? I'm an advisor to a company called Ama Hemp that uh -huh. also has some people with Onnit involved with them. So kind of by, uh, association. By, common, by association more than direct work, but yeah. That's awesome. I love the whole biohacking thing. Like I, I've paid a lot of attention to that. I'm always really interested in longevity research. Like mm -hmm. I, my plan A was to get bit by a vampire and it hasn't <laughs> happened yet. So now I'm going into plan B because I, I really do want to be immortal. 
But um, so yeah, do you, uh, does your company do a lot with that too, with longevity type of biohacking? Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of our primary uh, focus actually is longevity, optimal health, uh, really looking at the human body as something that has levels of potential beyond what most people function at. And <laughs> when you can dial those things in, you yeah. can increase lifespan. And we're seeing the technology really becoming available now in a way that hasn't been over the you know, past 20, 30 years as this stuff has been starting to be talked yeah. about. Now we're at a place where it's real and there's the capacity for people who are healthy to start thinking about how to implement this stuff to, to live longer and not just longer, but having quality of life for longer, right? Quality of life. That's what it's about. That's super amazing. So, um, so you mentioned at the beginning, you're having these problems passing out and everything. Um, did you, did cannabis play any part in that? Or was that more just about diet and lifestyle to, to heal yourself? It was more about diet and lifestyle. I mean, I'll tell you my, my history with cannabis, like I started using it when I was really young, you know, maybe mm -hmm. 14, 15, like a lot of people do. And in the, and my relationship with it is much different now uh, than it was. I smoke less frequently, but more intentionally. And um, who knows how it interacted with that stuff. I mean, I was smoking yeah. pretty heavily at that time. And, you know, it's, it, it's kind of an unknown for me. Uh, yeah. But I do know that changing some of the lifestyle stuff, changing some of the diet, nutrition supplements really did make a big difference. Very like cool. as, as a musician, like I was staying up, you know, two to five in the morning, sometimes writing music and going and playing shows and stuff. Yeah. And I feel like that was one of the big things that was actually really throwing some of my, my body rhythms off. Yeah. I still, I still slip into that. I'm such a mm -hmm. night owl. But um, so the thing that really fascinated me was, and I tried to understand it as best I could, I'm probably going to sound dumb anyway, but um, that there are uh, like a baseline dopamine level and there are different genes that we can have. And if you're whatever, like say type A, cannabis is like, you could be Snoop, you could like just smoke and function and live your life. And then if you're whatever type B is, then you become like Bill and Ted and you're just completely like, you know, can't keep old reference, but whatever the modern, uh, you can't keep thoughts in your head, that type of thing. So, and that's kind of something that we're hardwired the same way that, you know, you have blue eyes or green eyes. Is that correct? Yeah. I, that's, I love the Bill and Ted <laughs> reference there. I think that's, that's about right. Um, no so, you know, I, I don't want to be overly reductionistic and say it's just this one gene. Uh, there's a lot of other factors and probably a lot of genes we don't know about yet. But this one that you're talking about, COMT, is really important in cognitive function and being able to, you know, function well and, you know, do the Snoop Dogg, I'm building an empire while I'm smoking a blunt, you know, all, all day uh, kind of thing. And so, so yeah, like you mentioned, that this gene influences how we break down dopamine in the brain. And so if you have more of the enzyme that this gene makes, you tend to have lower dopamine levels and vice versa. If you have uh, less of this enzyme, tend to have higher dopamine levels. And they've found that when people get high, acute THC use, uh, people with the low dopamine variant tend to have way worse short-term memory. Mm -hmm. And people with the high dopamine variant tend to have much better short-term memory and seems to be kind of a protective factor. And so you can look at that as one of the central things that might create kind of the archetype, right? The, the Snoop Dogg versus the Bill and Ted archetype, the yeah. I'm a functional cannabis user versus I'm just going to lay on the couch, which like, you know, I think a lot of us that are pro-cannabis are fighting against, right? Yeah. Like in terms of like normalizing, like, yeah, you can use cannabis and, and not be this typical, stere the stereotypical stoner. Yeah. Uh, but some people are more capable of that than others. This, and is, this is why you will not see me high in public because uh -huh. I am, I am so the latter. And it's so like I, everything I speak about, which is what you said is, you know, uh, destigmatizing normalization. And I completely turn into, you know, like, uh, and people don't come up to me with like, you know, Cheech and Chong type of like, Hey, you know, legalize it. People come up to me with like, so I want to open a business and what's the legislation in my state. And I'm like, I can't form words right now. So, um, yeah. So if, if I'm consuming cannabis, I want to be on my couch playing a video game, watching a comedy with maybe just like 
you know, my boyfriend or my best friend, like it's for me something that's actually really almost antisocial. Um, so it's interesting to know that that is, because I've, I've always thought, I was like, this can't feel for me the way it feels for other people because they're just too coherent. They just, they speak too eloquently. Well, they could still run their business. I was like, they can't feel how I feel. So they don't, <laughs> basically. Yeah, I, I think that that's totally spot on. And what what's so interesting about that is, yeah, no people experience, no two people experience it differently. And then you bring strain into the the question. You know, yeah. most people are going to say, "Well, you should ju- you just need to find the right strain that will allow you to be that functional person." Mm-hmm. But in your experience, have you been able to find strains that really have a radically different response to you, or, or like, is it pretty much across the board? that like you're going to be, you want to be more on your own and, and, and not answering business questions kind of no matter what you're smoking. Um, that is actually how I fell in love with edibles. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that'll lead to something else, but um, strain does play somewhat of a, I mean, there's, there's nothing where it's perfect. Um, it's such a white girl thing, but blue dream was the one thing where I kind of found I could like consume it and like, wow, I'm not paranoid. I'm still able, like I was walking around by myself, not getting lost, you know, like very coherent. Um, but as a whole, it's, um, it's somewhat strain sensitive, but more so I found with edibles and that's because it turns into, um, 11 hydroxy THC. It's a different, um, type of metabolite or THC than normal mm-hmm. when you smoke cannabis. That was actually something I was able to tolerate better, which is probably why I started an edibles company. Um, mm-hmm. so it, do you find any validity of that, but also something you were saying about strain too, is strains are not consistent. So what is blue mm-hmm. dream on the East coast will not be the same on the West coast will not be the same in Colorado. So, um, I actually know someone who's trying to make a international database, almost like they have for pharmaceuticals. So you have an international drug code and, and to normalize or standardize strains to that degree. But until they are strain recommendations as a whole are kind of iffy just as a whole. <laughs> Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I, yeah. at this point, I talk about terpenes and cannabinoids rather than strains. Yeah, you know, and if yeah. we can get to that level, I think it, it helps everyone. Yeah. And I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense where it's like, you know, maybe there's a few things that are going to take you in a different place and the different routes of administration are important too. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that that same kind of pre-existing genetic tendency is going to be there Yeah, most of the time. So it's like, with the way I, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about it now, which is way different than I used to think about it. I mean, I used yeah. to be the bro, you just haven't found the right strain. Like yeah. you just need to find the right strain kind of guy, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, it, I think that there's sort of this hierarchy, you know, where it's like genetics, what's going on in your body and then strain yeah. and then set route of administration. You know? And so there's all these different pieces yeah. and if you're missing one of those pieces, you're kind of missing the whole picture. Yeah. So I see my role right now is the guy who's who's standing there saying a thing that no one really wants to hear, which is it's not all about strain, right? It's it's like there's there's more complexity to it than we we want to want to think about. Which like you know in the context of cannabis legalization, like it's kind of another step, right? Like we're yeah. just still trying to convince people this is you know not going to kill you and it's sure. be legal and and all that. But I think as conscientious advocates and practitioners and users it it really helps to understand these complexities and and idiosyncrasies because it just gives us more power to to make good choices about you know what we're using who's using what and how to do it um you know like the way you the way you described like oh i i know you know how i like to use cannabis like that's something that people that are just getting into this uh, find really valuable about the genetic testing yeah. is when we look at their genes and go, oh, you know, like you probably shouldn't do really complex tasks or, you know, you need yeah. to, you know, like don't try and run your business while you're high. It's probably not going to go and so And people well. just assume I'm going to be so good at all those things. Like, of course you could drive, of course you could work. And you're like, you don't understand, like you could build up a tolerance, but that still doesn't really change how you react. It could, yeah. I think it could dull. I mean, you could tell me more how tolerance plays into that, but I feel like it's almost kind of like for me, like going to the gym, like, it's not like it's just a pleasant trip the whole way. It's like, there's hard parts and then it gets easier. It's almost like you build up a tolerance and there's maybe a paranoia stage and really confusion stage. And then if you consume frequently enough, which I don't anymore, when I was younger, you got to a point where you kind of could 
function a little better. But I think that's almost more a nature nurture thing, like learned behavior. Um, I don't know. Where, where does tolerance kind of fit into all this? Yeah, tolerance is interesting. It, it is kind of an unknown. I mean, people's uh, cannabinoid receptors levels change over time with regular use. And there's not a lot of clear information on that. But one of the most common questions I get is, hey, I respond differently than I used to in yes. a certain way. So I think that's to be expected. But one thing I do want to point out there that you're saying is that, you know, paranoia kind of anxiety state um, that is more common for some people versus others. Mm -hmm. And there's also some genetics associated with that where there's a gene variant that's also in the dopamine system that can make you more prone to anxiety, more prone to paranoia. And so you might talk to some people who say, I never get paranoid. I don't even know what you're talking about. That's not a part of my regular experience, but some people that is, and for some people it's really extreme. And I think you're totally right about there's a balance between nature and nurture. Mm-hmm. There's a balance between are you naturally anxious anyway? You know, are you naturally someone who doesn't know how to cope with the emotions that come up when you're high? Because inevitably it's going to put you yeah. in a different space where you're observing yourself differently. But I think there's also this tendency that's a little bit hardwired where you may or may not have more of a just a paranoid experience. And like the the study that they they did this with was great. They actually let people bring their own weed to the study. They mm-hmm. like let let about 150 people bring their own joint. They let them smoke a joint of their own weed. So they were controlling for does strain make a difference? You know, people bringing the strains that they liked, and they found that it actually really didn't so much. It was just huh. you know this gene had the biggest effect. Like whether or not on this scale, that kind of looks at. Um, non-ordinary states and things that um you know would be related to paranoia that yeah. people with this variant just just scored about 20 percent higher than the other other variant that's so interesting i had an ex who really was the most paranoid person i had ever seen to the point where we had a list taped to our living room wall we were young at the time just sharpie of all the things he would start freaking out about so it was just like, you are not dying. This is not happening. Like all these like notations. So um, I mean, I've known people who get like terribly paranoid. Um, I think for me, it's something that almost can become like a mania, but I will channel it into journaling or something. Um, and at, like when I was developing some of my products, it was like, well, I have to sample these and this and that. So um, I, I would almost know how strong something was by like what level of mania was achieved. But I think there's also, um, you know, so for me, cannabis, I think was almost a harder drug than it is for other people who see it as just this kind of mellow background thing. Like, I I don't know, when people say that, I'm like, that's not really how I see it. But um, yeah, so do those people ever, is there an amount they can smoke to feel the way the other people may feel off one or two hits? So I, I think the do- the dosage really does matter. Mm-hmm. And for someone who might have a, a greater tendency towards paranoid anxiety, probably going with the lower dose makes more sense. Um, but on the flip side, you know, someone who's less prone to that at higher doses, you know, again, that, that might show up in, in varying yeah. ways. Um, and that's why... Oh, go ahead. Oh, oh, no, you go ahead, please. I was going to say, I think that's why some people don't like edibles is they'll, you know, be someone who's usually completely always 100% comfortable consuming, smoking, whatever. And then they mistakenly try like a 100 milligram brownie or something. And they feel that experience, which is so foreign to them. Uh, I'll share my experience (laughs) and and, and validate that. I remember about probably about 15 years ago, me and my friends ate a bunch of edibles. And next thing I remember, I'm like laying in the back of my friend's Honda Accord, like a (laughs) uncomfortable octopus squirming out of water going you need to take me to the hospital and my friend looks back we're not taking you to the hospital you just ate too much weed yeah (laughs) yeah and um sure enough there are some genetic variants and and that probably the strongest ones to know about the most important ones are around edible metabolism um yeah yeah there's a there's this gene this liver enzyme codes for a liver enzyme called cyp2c9 that can create about a threefold difference in the level of THC in someone's bloodstream from the same dose 
from the like fast thorough metabolizer variant to the slow poor metabolizer variant. I'm an intermediate metabolizer based on my genetics. So I'm kind of right in the middle. But I'm what so they found curious. Is, I'm so curious yeah. to know what I am. Yeah. So, but what they found is that the people that are the slow metabolizers, um, they tend to build up THC in their bloodstream much more readily, especially with edibles, because we're talking about something that's ingested in the stomach first, mm -hmm. then it goes into the bloodstream and then the liver as compared to smoking or vaping, where it's like a much more direct route to the brain. So there's less chance for that enzyme to work on THC, but with edibles or a tincture, you're really talking about the liver being the part that filters that THC between your mouth and your brain. So people that are the slow metabolizers where they don't make as much of this enzyme, it actually doesn't convert into the 11-hydroxy as much uh, because they run out of this enzyme essentially. And then that also means that they don't convert as much of the 11-hydroxy into the THC-COOH metabolite, which is what they look for on drug tests. So there's been some speculation that people that are slow metabolizers, although they can get rocked by edibles, um, they probably, they're probably easier to pass a drug test because their body literally doesn't create as much of the, the THC-COOH huh. uh, metabolite that gets stored. Wouldn't it leave their body slower too then? So wouldn't it take longer or leave their system? Good question. So it's actually a different system in the body okay. that gets rid of that final metabolite. Um, and those are also the, they're called glucuronidation genes. Um, and the, those are also something I can, I can look at as well with the genetics. So like, if you had someone like me, who's like, cause I think about this sometimes too. Like if I was ever a patient for something that was chronic, like say uh, pain or anxiety where I, you know, I know people who consume morning, noon and night. And you say like, this is not something I function well on. This is like, you know, not something I, I feel like I, is there a way to say we can make this medicine work for you or is this just maybe not the substance to treat your ailment then? I think there's almost always a way to make it work. It's more about having the information about, you know, what you need to be aware of, right? Like the way that I use genetics, it, it, they're, they're not great at just predicting absolute outcomes, right? They're really, but what they are really good at is having a conversation about this. Like, how do you experience edibles? Let's look at your genes and see if we can come up with some reasons why you're experiencing it that way. And now that we know that you're experiencing that way, what are the things that we can do to maybe modify that response? So like, for example, with someone who um, you know, is more prone to the short-term term memory issues. Well, you know, let's talk about how we can modify your usage so you're still getting therapeutic amounts, but you're not necessarily trying to go, um, you know, do do math or balance your checkbook yeah. at that time. And then maybe there are certain terpenes or certain other supplements or things that help boost cognitive function in a way that can balance those things out. You were saying that we can create uh, customized systems and you were saying that terpene and cannabinoid profiles play a larger role than say exactly strain. So um, now in a perfect world where maybe you could craft medicine with whatever targeted terpene and cannabinoids you want, how much research is there on the individual compounds to say this is what would be the best for you? Can you literally say, okay, you have XYZ gene, we're going to put you on something that's high in mercine with high CBN or like whatever, like that. Yeah. So just the genes alone? No, absolutely not. There's okay. no studies correlating genetic variables to outcomes with different terpenes or cannabinoids. Flat should, out. should there be? There should be. Okay. But what Get can be done, <laughs> what, can, what can absolutely be done yeah. is take someone's goals, take someone's health history, take someone's symptoms, right? And match that with their genetics, use these as data points together, and then think about how that fits into to terpene and cannabinoid profiles. Because when you get, when you can look at both, it adds another layer of understanding what someone's going, what's going on in someone's body than just knowing, you know, what a symptom is. So when you're looking at something like, chronic pain, um, it would be helpful to know, hey, how does this person produce their own endocannabinoids, which are involved in the pain response? Are they more likely to be producing this one or that one? And there are genes that we can look at that help us understand that. And then based on that, there's different cannabinoids that 
activate different receptors and then we can look at how those fit into the, the picture and, and try that in a, in a more targeted kind of way so i know my answer isn't simple and no, you know no. yes yeah. you know but but i think that's the the you know that's really where the the value of this stuff comes in is being able to see um how all these things kind of fit together like puzzle pieces mm-hmm. um and, and genetics aren't necessarily this like one-to-one, you have this gene, so it means that you're gonna do well with this strain. It means, uh, you know, you have some predispositions and tendencies. Let's see how they're expressing. Let's see how they're showing up and how that might influence different st- strains or terpene. So you mentioned predispositions, which reminds me of, I have a lot of friends in recovery and I've heard that uh, epigenetics testing um, that there are certain compounds, and of course, I've heard this with CBD, that can help people who are in recovery programs, and then also with uh, hallucinogens, psychedelics, which I'd love to talk about, because I know you've done a lot of research on that as well. But um, all those people are really opposed to anything. They get so afraid, um, once they're clean, of putting any substance that they think it's going to be a slippery slope, and they're going to be you know, right back to where they started. So if someone came to you with that mission, with a, you know, they're clean, whatever, a month or so, and they've relapsed before, and they're looking to use um, either cannabis, CBD, or a hallucinogen um, as a means of recovery. How about is testing for that? Does Gen X play a role? So it does, but I wouldn't necessarily, I would definitely look at the genes related to cannabis, THC withdrawal and craving. There's some good studies mm-hmm. on that. Um, and see how that impacts things. I mean, you know, someone with active addiction, there's lots of different neural pathways that reinforce that, those addictive tendencies, right? Yeah. And there are certain genetic predispositions that, you know, create, say, lower dopamine sensitivity, which leads to trying to get the pleasure reward response over and over again. And that creates that pattern. Um, and there, there are some other ways to look at genes um, and look at other compounds outside of uh, CBD or THC, like I'm talking about like more nutritional supplements and things like that, that can mm-hmm. directly influence the, this pathway. So if someone came to me, that's what I would look at first. Um, I would look, um, you know, it'd be definitely helpful to look at the the cannabis genetics, but I would also be wary, you know, is this going to be something that, that triggers yeah. that yeah. type of craving thing again? You know, it's, um, cause I've I'm heard, also, Oh, I was going to say, I've heard people who al- alcoholics, even heroin mm-hmm. users who have, um, like psilocybin, even just microdosing things like that, or high dose just a few times and, um, have come away and been like craving was gone, rewired my brain. I'm good. And you're like, I don't know, is that, you know, placebo? Is there any validity to that? I mean, oh, I think there's lots of validity to that. The, the, the stuff yeah, right? is right now they're looking at psychedelics and addiction are, are are getting pretty amazing results. Um, you know, I, I think it's a question of um, what's actually happening. You know, is this something that's purely a neurological reset or is this allowing someone to process, say, difficult emotions or that is leading to the dissipation of a of need for addiction, right? Need mm-hmm. for replacing that with a substance. And I, I, I'm talking about these things as, as two separate things. Like they're not totally interrelated. I mean, yeah. they are, uh, but you know, I, I think that's also the uh, the power of those substances is is being able to use them in a way where you're consciously moving through through your own psyche and a different material where that's outside the realm of normal space, right? Very um, cool. You know, I, I think there's not a there's not really good data yet on psychedelics and genetics, but that actually is something that I'm also working on and playing around with. And Yeah. I feel like, you know, the progressive states are already starting to get that on the books. And I feel like that's going to be our next thing. Once we bring everyone on board for cannabis, we're going to say, okay, here's the next thing we're looking at. So um, yeah, I think the early research on it is pretty fascinating. Uh, so all of this is great. And I have wanted to get my lab work done on this but I am terrified because, all right, so I I will preface by saying I'm very tinfoil hat. Like I am a conspiracy theorist, but that's been more accepted during COVID. Like it's kind of nice to see people coming around. I'm like, I've been telling you that for years. But um, so in my head, I just think 
the government and corporations are harvesting our DNA to use against us in all the most terrible ways. And uh, the one thing that really got me down this path of thinking this is 23andMe, if we look at the, um, the founder, is the wife of the founder of Google. So uh, I, I don't know if, I'm assume you know that, uh, you know. So um, the, literally 23andMe has over 12 million people now who they've harvested their genetic data and then, you know, Sergey or whoever we're at Google has the world's literal data. And now if we are merging those two, and, and 23andMe has already been used to track um, criminal cases, and then it, it just seems like, I don't know, the beginning of a dystopian sci-fi movie. It just sounds very scary to me. So um, I know there's independent labs, but how, how safe can we feel giving literally our breakdown of ourselves over to strangers. Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point. And I am equally as wary of <laughs> giving genetic data over to 23andMe and other profit yeah. or companies where their profit motive is based on harvesting data and selling it and making sure that you don't get compensated for it. Otherwise, you know, that, that there goes the profit, right? So I, I don't recommend 23andMe anymore because of yeah. those reasons. We use a private lab and we do everything in a way where you own your data. We don't, we don't own, we don't have any rights to it. And we store it on servers in a way where your personal information is not able to be identified with it. And so say, for example, when we run a, run a report, you know, we're going to analyze um, on the, on the, with the test on the back end, you know, about 700,000 different variants. Mm -hmm. When I'm running a cannabinoid test, I'm pulling only about 50 of those out. So what's actually stored online is a very tiny, tiny amount of genetic data that could never actually be used to identify someone. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're taking these safeguards because of bad actors like 23andMe yeah. And it's like, you know, I, I got 23andMe done back in the day because I was like, okay, it's worth it for me. I, I weighed the, the risks yeah, and benefits. Yeah. I was like, I want this information. But at the same time, I, I kind of wish I hadn't contributed to that business model. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I've wanted it for uh, nutrition reasons quite so, a bit. You know, I, I think it's worth considering and being aware of. The cannabis usage is really interesting to me. But aside from that, um, I told you the longevity thing would be amazing. But my cousin works in nutrition and she had a breakdown done that said like a keto diet would be terrible for her. Mm -hmm. And I actually tried keto and I, uh, I pricked my finger every morning. I watched, you know, my levels. I did everything right. I had my log, like I took exogenous ketones, like I did everything to the T. And after a month, I gained a pound. So I was like, all right, you know what? And then you hear these stories of people who drop weight like that. So I was like, I would love to have it done for the nutritional side, for the cannabis side, for all these different things. But is there a way where it could be just completely anonymous where I just went in somewhere and I'm like, Jane Doe, here you go. Do the full panel, oh, yeah. do you, everything. You can make a fake email and uh, not have your real name tied to anything in our, our system, you know, if oh. that's what you want to do. So very cool. Um, but I, I've also heard that if you're enough of your relatives do it, they can create a tree back to you anyway. Mm, I suppose if if you're looking at the 23andMe database, maybe yeah. uh, the way that our lab works is, and I'll tell you, like when we run the data, the lab itself never actually has access to your name, to anything like that. Uh, we we kind of match that up on the back end just when we send, send you the information. Okay. Um, so there they would have to somehow get your file it would be like my sense is like the government has so many other ways of tracking us like yeah in order to go after private data banks of stuff that is like securely stored i, I feel like it's, it's pretty low risk with the type of safeguards we have in place one thing i that i think is curious is the interaction between cannabis and alcohol because i have found that if actually i'm mixing those two then it absolutely counters a lot of the other things, the uh, the paranoia, the confusion, it kind of just creates a nicer baseline. Or then I know people who are like, if I have one drink when I smoke, I puke. Like it just makes them like get vertigo or something. So is that, um, all, does that all come down to genetics too? Because then I think that goes into something which we might start seeing as cannabis lounges. 
I just think like, oh, how can you have that without having alcohol there too, which will probably never be allowed. Um, and some people are like, no, that's perfect. Where I can't imagine sitting somewhere for five hours and just everyone continuing to get higher and higher without, you know, like I said, that mania setting in. So, um, yeah. And, uh, so how alcohol and cannabis play with each other genetically? You know, that's a really good question. I, I, I don't know the, the answer to that. I, I imagine there is some type of genetic correlation that's causing those extreme reactions on either side, but yeah. I, I'm not familiar with any research that's looked at those things in combination, mm-hmm. um, you know, in terms of like the order of operations where this stuff happens from a research standpoint, yeah. we're still at a fairly basic level. So adding in that type of interactions, uh, interactions yeah. starts to, um, it, it will be several iterations from here, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, curious. I mean, I do pretty okay with it, but I also know people that can't mix the two either. So yeah, it does leave a lot to, to wonder about. Interesting. So something else I read is that um, we can actually, and I don't know if this is true, change our DNA and our genetics with our mind to some degree, that actually they've done studies where they had someone relax and the DNA chain actually like lengthened because it relaxed. Um, And I don't know if that's the placebo effect or something else, but how much of this do we have control over? Can we change the way we're hardwired to a degree? This is that's a great question. So what you're talking about is epigenetics. Yeah. So and I want to make the distinction, you know, for your listeners here, like your genetic code, your base DNA doesn't change, but there's all these little marks on that code, this kind of second layer that causes them to express differently in response to different stimuli from the environment. And I use the word environment to kind of mean everything, right? Like that's also the environment in our body that our minds create when we're stressed out versus relaxed versus feeling love and joy and excitement and happiness versus feeling angry and depressed. And, you know, these create different chemical conditions in the body, Mm -hmm. energetic conditions in the body. And our DNA is absolutely responsive to that. And there, yes, to answer your question, yes, absolutely. Um, and I think in a lot of senses that is tied into the placebo effect in terms of the way that our mind influences the body. And the more and more I understand this, the less I distinguish between those two things. You know, the, the mind is, it inhabits the body and the body informs the way the mind works. Like the, the brain, okay, we got this big chunk of nervous system, you know, central nervous system right here, but it's distributed out through all our nerves too. And there's similar, um, you know, transmission of neurotransmitters happening all around the body. I mean, this yeah. is kind of the central processing unit, obviously, but I, I think it, it, it doesn't work so well in isolation, right? Yeah. Um, so yes, we can absolutely express through on epigenetic changes in psychotherapy, where they found that just you know sitting in a room and talking to someone and and working through things that you know we, people would describe as very mental, very intellectual, mm-hmm. very emotional, has a physical effect on the on, on the genes and and the way that certain genes express and the physical marks that are attached to those genes. So. You know, I, I look at something like cannabis um, in terms of how does it affect your mental functioning and sense of stress or, or non-stress, and that being just as important as any of like the direct reactions with cannabinoid receptors or anything like that. Like, what are you doing to either improve your kind of overall mind-body relationship or are you if you're someone that is getting stressed out and paranoid every time you're probably having a further detrimental effect on just overall stress and that kind of stuff if there's so many great things we can learn from this down from you know uh mental improvement biological uh you know I, i know they test things like the breast cancer gene but why are they not you know mapping us so we can eat the right way so we can live the best you know, be our best selves, basically, right from the start. Um, is it because it's so new or are doctors not taking it serious enough? Uh, I think it's a combination of all of those things. And when you look at the general scope of what healthcare does in the United States, it's sick care, right? It's yeah. not really about making you as healthy as you can be. It's about keeping you just healthy enough. 
Um, and, you know, not to discredit or, you know, say anything bad about the doctors themselves that are embedded in the system, but it is the nature of the system itself that is, you know, saying, all right, you need to see, you know, the 10 patients in an hour so we can bill you for insurance and doctor, most doctors don't have the time to go that extra step. So there, there are people like myself and other coaches who do this type of optimal health work and, you know, can give you information about nutrition and other lifestyle factors that really can, you know, look at longevity and things like that. But yeah, Yeah. it's not mainstream, you know, it's not, um, it's not mainstream in the way that, um, you know, knowing blood work. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like Uh, healthcare is such a bigger question in America. And obviously we just need the, the very basics, like being able to afford it. But um, I've heard that like in Asian cultures, actually your doctor, like you said, we have sick care. He only gets paid if you stay well. So it's all preventative medicine. And if you don't get sick that year, your doctor had a good year. If you do get sick, now your doctor's failing. So it's actually the opposite. And I don't know how much truth there is or if that's commonplace, but it, it seems like, yeah, their best interest almost is when things do go wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the profit model here is very much built on when things go wrong. Uh, I think you're right. The, the Chinese medicine model is very much in a tradition of wellness and prevention. And I don't even like using the word prevention in terms of what I do, because that's just like a small piece of it. Yeah. It's like prevention is still coming from the deficit model, right? It's like, let's prevent you from getting sick there. That's still on the side of sick care. The, optimal wellness and improving functioning, increasing longevity, increasing, you know, capacity to perform. Those are the things that I really like to focus on because they're on the other side of the spectrum from the sick model. It's the, you know, the well model. So like cost wise, if someone, cause I know like 23 and me is really cheap, but like we said, that has many issues. If someone wants to actually come into your clinic and have like a doctor personally review them, do the full panel, like map out, you know, a diet plan, like all that, like, is this a a luxury for people who really have some disposable income? Is this something affordable to the average person? Mm -hmm. Well, just to to clear up a couple things, like there are doctors that do this work. I'm not a doctor, so I'm really only working in the, in the wellness model. Yeah. Um, And in terms of pricing, um, it depends. I have a pretty wide range of options for people. Um, You know, most people, I, I mean, I've worked with people all across the income spectrum and it's a matter of, hey, does this matter to you? Does your health matter to you? Um, I have options that start at around four or 500 bucks. It's actually, you know, 300 if you just wanted to run the, the endocannabinoid panel on its own uh, with the test and a review session. Um, but yeah, I, I have much more higher end options for people that yeah. are really serious about this. And I think it's important to be able to provide those different options. Um, because, you know, not everyone can afford spending thousands of dollars. Yeah. Um, but even a small amount of information, if someone is really serious about applying it, I think makes a big difference. So I was thinking on dispensary level, if this was something that someone could say is mandatory, like we require all our patients to have this panel done. So we know how to best advise you if someone really wanted to be serious about taking a medical approach. But if it's $300, that's kind of a high uh, bar to make something like mandatory. But I mean, it is a, a nice, maybe upgrade service to offer for people who, you know, maybe epileptic, something where you, you really have to try to target it to get the right medicine. Um, then I could see that value being a, a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that, um, you know, for certain people, it really makes a lot of sense. And for others, not so much, you know, some people can certainly just experiment and figure this stuff out on their own. But for yeah. anyone that is, um, you know, interested in understanding their body better, for whatever reason, it, it's, it's a great tool. Very cool. If other people want to do what you do, how can they can get into that? Yeah. So, um, I am, uh, running a practitioner training in August and this is going to be the first launch of this practitioner training. You know, if you're listening to this and you're a coach or a doctor or therapist or nurse or other type of practitioner that's working with people who are using cannabinoids and you're thinking, you know, this would be really interesting to know for them. I'd like to have some real training on, on 
how to use this well. I am running this practitioner training in August. Uh, and if you go to canadna.education, you can sign up for the email list and uh, get some information when the course launches. I'll be running a free training to give you a little bit of a deeper picture into what the course is about and more information on everything we talked about. And if uh, you know, you're thinking, yeah, I have clients that are using cannabinoids and they're asking me how I should be using them and I'd like to give them better, more precise answers and I'd like to have a skill that makes me a unique, unique as a practitioner, you know, this is going to be the training for you. So yeah, CanadaDNA.education and anyone that's listening that is just interested in getting this test done um, can also either go to CanadaDNA.education or go to my website, david-crantz.com and send me a message. We can set up a time to talk and do the panel. And I also have a bunch of uh, articles and things on my site that you can read for free that uh, cover individual genes and how they impact response to cannabis. That's really cool. I think that's a great thing for not just dispensaries, but caretakers. Yeah. Anyone who is working hands-on with cannabis patients to know. Um, mm -hmm. And that's dot the word education, right? Not dot edu. <laughs> dot education full. The word. Full word. Mm -hmm. Very cool. And how about on a uh, social if people want to connect with you there? Socials, I'm at Whole Systems Health on Instagram and David Krantz, Epigenetic Coach on Facebook. All right. Awesome. David, this was amazing. This was like such a wealth of information. I almost want to like digest and I'm sure after I hang up, I'm going to think of like 15 more things I should have asked you. But um, yeah, this was, um, thank you for doing this work. You know, it's great when people really start reaching into new areas of cannabis advancement. And, and these are the things that make people view it as medicine and, and yeah, keep changing the world. So awesome. <laughs> yeah, well, I appreciate the, the time and space to talk about it. I'm a, obviously a huge nerd for this stuff. So <laughs> so it's nice to just let more people know about that it exists. Yeah. Uh, so thank you. Absolutely. All right. Bye. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Trailblazing with Taramisu. Trailblazers, if you could take one moment and go to Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and leave a review, it really helps other cannabis supporters find us and it would mean the world to me. We have new episodes every week, so make sure you're subscribed so you're always getting the latest Trailblazing content. I would love to connect and you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter as Blazin Bakery. That's B-L-A-Z-I-N Bakery. Check out BlazinBakery.com for awesome cannabis products, including our new CBD pet line, Blazin Barkery, a company I founded with my dog, Diablo. As always, my name is Tara Masu. Love you all and keep on trailblazing. <laughs>